Welcome to Attached, a special mini pod, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using the science. 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 (laughs) I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Today, our whole mini pod is focused on pop culture, specifically the election. You know which one. In this mini pod, <laughs> we are is going. There, it's not the Canadian <laughs> Prime Minister election. It's not. It's not that one. It's not the election of our podcast board. <laughs> We don't have one, by the way. So we're going to skip right to the academic deep dive segment where we're going to discuss the academic article explaining the impact of differences in voting patterns on resilience and relational load in romantic relationships during the transition to the Trump presidency. And then in good or bad advice, we're going to talk about advice from social medias and also the New York Times about how to talk to family members when there are political differences. As always, if you have advice uh, about anything relationship related, not just specifically the election, that you want us to talk about it, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us at attachedpodcast, or just go to our wonderful attachedpodcast.com website and send us a message. As always, you can follow us on YouTube, uh, also, if you prefer a video format and listening to our voices and also watching our faces simultaneously. Reminder, please to rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Now we're going to move straight to the academic deep dive segment and talk about an article titled Explaining the Impact of Differences in Voting Patterns on Resilience and Relational Load in Romantic Relationships During the Transition to the Trump Presidency, written by a team out of the University of California, Santa Barbara, led by Dr. Tamara Afifi. Recently published in the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships, the authors explore how voting in the 2016 presidential election impacted individuals' romantic relationships. The authors point out that romantic partners are more likely to be satisfied, commitment, and feel emotionally connected when they share core values and have similar political views. I know the core values piece we've talked about a lot on this podcast. Mm -hmm. However, this is incredibly challenging given our current political environment. This may have been uniquely true Of course, during the presidential election, given the increased political polarization, a Gallup poll around this time found that 77% of Americans thought the country was severely divided, a statistic that hasn't improved in the last few years. The author cited previous research finding that 11% of couples separated after the 2016 election, I did not know that, because of political disagreement, a rate that actually doubled to 22% among millennial couples. However, the study explored how it is that some couples stayed together and experienced less conflict despite having very different political views. Very, very fascinating, especially given what today is. Sarah, how did they 
do this? Yeah, so I agree that this is really fascinating and really important for how we are thinking about politics and the impact on relationships, the focus of our mm-hmm. mini pod today. And although they didn't look at political identity, part of what they're talking about, about why this may impact relationships so much is that we become emotionally attached to our political party. And when that happens, we view others as part of an outgroup. Right. And that can happen even if the people who think differently than us and vote differently than us are our romantic partners or our family members, because politics provides this kind of uniquely social connection. Being part of this partisan group is an in-group. So they looked at how the 2016 presidential election may have presented a unique level of conflict and stress for couples who vote differently. So the authors used their theory of resilience and relational load to test this idea. So Mm -hmm. the big picture being that relational partners who maintain and invest in their relationships on a regular basis through what they call pro-social verbal and non-verbal behaviors and actions, that's like hugging, kissing, Mm. verbal validation, gratitude, doing something nice for the other person, spending quality time together, all those kinds of verbal and non-verbal ways that we Mm. connect. All very important. All really important. Build emotional reserves or emotional capital that they can draw on when they're stressed and it helps protect the relationship during stress and fosters resilience. So the other piece that's really key about this theory for thinking about politics and relationships is that when couples perceive of themselves as the team up against life's challenges together, they want to invest in their relationships. And that's reciprocal because Mm -hmm. the more investing they do, the more they feel unified, which helps them perceive events as less stressful in the first place. Um, Sometimes referred to as weeness. Weeness. Yeah. <laughs> weeness. <laughs> that word shouldn't make me giggle, but it, it does. So the first time uh, my husband and I did this kind of it's called the marriage checkup. It's like a going to the doctor's office, but for your marriage checkup that the person who was facilitating it said weeness a bunch. My husband was giggling just the whole entire time. Every time the facilitator said weeness, <laughs> And finally, the facilitator stopped and looked at him. He was like, like, I agree. I just have to say it a bunch. It's hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Together. Communally oriented. Weeness. Weeness. So their idea was that in thinking about the presidential election, romantic partners who voted differently may have felt less unified or we Mm. we weeness or together. (laughs) (laughs) Is that all right? No, 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 it's 100% right. Making them less likely to invest in their relationships over time, which leads to this idea of eventually relational load, this wear and tear in relationships due to chronic stress. So they were testing whether people who maintain their relationships leading up to and throughout the transition to the Trump presidency will experience less stress related to the election and the new presidency, less conflict, less of this wear and tear, this relational load and greater relational resilience due to that relationship maintenance. So their sample was 961 individuals who are either married or cohabiting, average age of 36. That's a huge sample. Huge sample. It was recruited via Amazon's like Mechanical Turk. So makes it a little bit easier to get those numbers. But all across the US, 68% female, 96% in heterosexual relationships, 75% white, 43% were Democrat, 
27% independent, 26% Republican, though a third said that they consider themselves to be liberal, a third moderates, and a third conservative. So, and this is data I don't usually collect in my own samples, but 32% voted for Trump, 42% voted for Clinton, and 11% did not vote. They then asked who their partner voted for, since that's really kind of what they're interested in. 65% said their partner had voted for the same candidate. 8% were split in their vote for Trump and Clinton. There were other oh. voting differences, like I voted for Trump and my partner didn't vote, or I voted for Clinton and my partner did a third party, but 8% were in that really kind of key separation. And they surveyed these participants over three waves. So they did a survey about two weeks before the inauguration and asked about behaviors, perceptions since the election, a day after inauguration, and then a month into the presidency to reflect on that first 30 days. And so the surveys included measures of relationship maintenance, which we had talked about is really kind of key in their test, the whether my partner made me laugh, whether they said thank you, they held my hand, but also whether I did those things for my partner, whether I had dinner with my partner, whether I did something thoughtful for them. So in both directions, that communal orientation, that we-ness, whether my partner and I approach life in general as a team, whether we always get through stress together. They also assessed election-related stress. They adapted the perceived stress scale, which is really interesting. And instead of asking general stress, ask questions like, since November 8th, how often have you felt that you were unable to control things in your life because of the election and upcoming presidency, which is a fascinating way to edit, revise a very common scale to be yeah. asking specifically about this event. They asked about conflict at all three time points, relational resilience, this idea that I believe my partner and I can create the ideal relationship, overcome obstacles, control our wow. fate together. And then relational load, which they adapted from a very, very common burnout measure. I feel emotionally drained from my relationship. I have become insensitive or uncaring toward my partner. It's so wow. interesting. I've never seen anybody do that. So um, another way to it. describe relational load is like relational burnout. It's really cool. Just as an aside, that would be really interesting in caregiver research. That's Mm. Kind of, you get a flavor sometime in the caregiver surveys, but that would be yeah. fascinating. So what they found was that individuals who voted similarly to their partners had less election stress, less conflict, less relational load. They felt more communally oriented and had greater relational resilience across the board. That's just across the board, voted similarly. That's what they found. Specific to what they were looking to test, they found that providing ongoing relationship maintenance to my partner, mm -hmm. as well as relationship maintenance received from my partner were both predictive of significantly less stress about the Trump presidency for myself. Yeah, less conflict, less relational load, greater communal orientation, greater relational resilience at the beginning of the study. And that was stable across the three time points that they surveyed. And that was true regardless of how partners voted. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yes. So voting differently was related to greater stress about the presidency and, and worse outcomes. But regardless of whether they voted the same or different, investing in the relationship predicted better outcomes. Acted as a buffer. Mm -hmm. And then they also found that voting differently was associated with less feelings of unity with a partner, which over time meant there was less relationship maintenance given to the partner at times mm. two and three, which led to less communal orientation, less feeling like we're a team together at time three. And this kind of fueled 
conflict and stress. So, and the greater conflict election related stress over time was related to an increase in that relationship burnout piece. There are some caveats to this study. I think it's really important that pay attention to that sample being really middle-class educated, predominantly white, almost entirely heterosexual couples. So these findings might not apply for more oppressed groups, racial minorities and gender minorities. And we're not sure how this would look for people lower SES. I think that's really important. And people Um, with different potentially immigration statuses as well. Yeah. Yep. Who who may have experienced this political polarization differently differently. than this sample. I think there's something interesting here about first, this idea that maybe people voting differently from us are not necessarily not supportive of us, that there's maybe this outgroup idea that we need to think about how we can challenge. And one of the pieces of the literature that these researchers describe is science that focuses on intellectual humility is what they call it. So this idea that the more willing we are to recognize the limits of our own knowledge and willing to maybe be influenced by a partner, the more likely we are to be able to resolve conflict and feel closer. It's not that conflict isn't going to happen when we think differently, but it's that can we have disagreements and can we have these conversations that are otherwise really partisan? Can we have them in a way where we communicate appreciation and respect for the other person and openness to their ideas without that becoming defensive or hostile. And some people may listen to this and say, absolutely not. Right. And also a sizable portion. I mean, I think one in 10 couples that separated saying it was due to political differences is like, is a big deal. Having similar core values is, is very, very important as, Mm -hmm. as well. So not to diminish that importance and also this 8% of people of couples who had, who voted differently from their partner is quite a small percentage as Mm -hmm. well. So we're also talking about a very, very small group of people, but it's important to understand what's going on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's almost one in 10. It's a small portion of this sample. And I suspect there's many more people out there, especially if we expand outside romantic relationships, when we're thinking about people embedded in friendships and, but especially families, families who we're not choosing to be related to, and Mm -hmm. we are related to, and how much the political polarization has affected family relationships. And I, and I think that that will be true, not just today, but in the coming weeks and the next several months, I think that that is, it's possible it will intensify the same way it did in late 2016, based on my yeah. clinical experience. So what I think is a really the more important takeaway of this research is that the couples in this project were surviving the stress. Right, right. By investing in their relationships continually it doesn't just help them to stay connected, but it also helped them personally as individuals experience less stress. So I think, again, not not necessarily a different takeaway than we may have had from other studies we've talked about on this podcast, but specific to the stress we may be feeling today and kind of the next few months, investing in ways intentionally in our relationships that are not political could help us weather the storm. Yeah, and I think that that takeaway is very important and potentially can be generalized to other relationships that we mentioned, family relationship, friendship relationships, these relationships that are very important to us. How do we weather this storm? Intentionally engaging in this relationship maintenance can both help our relationships 
maintain long-term. I mean, it's going to be rocky, but also like you're saying, buffer against our own stress. And I'm sure we're all feeling so much stress. So Mm -hmm. it might be one way to try and be proactive about long-term mitigation of our own stress. And I, and I think too, this, this points to this idea of there can be difference in relationship and the relationship can still be successful, right? If you are making those investments, there can be political differences, religious differences, those types of things. And if people can find ways to navigate them, it can strengthen your relationship. One of the pieces of that theory of relational load is that resilience piece, right? And if we're making those consistent investments, we're going to reduce that burnout, reduce that load that allows us to have the space to have the tough conversations that can help us navigate relationships and potentially make them stronger. It's not always easy, but if those investments are being made, I think as this, and Dr. Afifi's done other cool studies looking at like the Great Recession and how this has played out too. If you're making those investments, you can weather this stress in a way that can build and provide resilience to your relationship. Mm-hmm. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Now moving on to good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear about relationship advice from parents, families, and friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us across all of the social medias, blogs, and numerous top 10 lists. But a lot of it just actually isn't good advice for our relationships. This is the part of the show when we use science, mind you, to decide if this advice is good or bad. And specifically today in our mini pod, we're going to talk about advice related to having political conversations and kind of coping with the ongoing stress. So first up, Jacob has a tweet from Ava DuVernay. So this tweet reads simply, next week has been exhausting. I'm going to say this is good advice. Yeah. For a couple of reasons. If you're like me, you have been inundated with political ads, text messages, phone calls, all of that stuff, which just kind of amplifies as we've gotten closer to election day. And also the thing is, is anxiety is often very anticipatory, Mm. thinking about the future and in ways that not necessarily we can control. And often we'll think about that, what's going to happen in the future and think about it over and over and over and over again in a way that we try to say, let's get some semblance of control. When in fact, we won't know until we actually know. So I think why this is good advice is because if you are thinking about the future in a way that makes it exhausting, that's like a key indicator to turn in and start taking care of yourself and your relationships. If you're exhausted by potentials, that means that you're focusing on maybe those things that you can't control. When it comes to election, what can we control really? The conversations we have with our friends and family and making sure we have a plan to vote. And that's not a lot given the amount of anxiety, the amount of attention and the amount of pressure that has been put on this upcoming election. Yeah, this Tuesday. Uh, Yeah. So I think that it's really important to know that if you are stressed about things that are happening in the future, that means that you are feeling out of control 
And it's a key indicator to start taking care of yourself and focusing maybe on more of those things that you can control. Yeah, I also think good advice. I mean, I just love this phrasing in general. I love that it's marking, giving a heads up for everyone's tired and everyone's stressed. And I think as much as we can give each other grace in the next few days and few weeks and few months, it's an important reminder that no matter how today turns out, it will be stressful. And for some people, it will be highly, highly stressful for some of this lacking control piece that Jacob's talking about for for lots of reasons, for many reasons, and differently for different groups of people. I think kind of being patient with ourselves and with other people that we know and are connected to, but also that we don't know might be really helpful way to connect with each other. Yeah. So overall good advice. And what I particularly, in addition to what both of you have said, what I particularly liked about this is just the recognition that we're all stressed. Of course, a very clever way of of phrasing it. Whenever you label something, whenever you recognize that you're not alone in this, it automatically gives you a sense of relief. This is not just something in my head that I'm experiencing. And this tweet for me, though very simple, it kind of gave me that sense of, of relief that I too am experiencing anticipatory stress. We all are, so many people are, we're in this together, all feeling stress. So I think that's also very important, just collectively labeling something as it is and recognizing that that label. So for different reasons, all of us emphasize that this is good advice. So next up on the docket is an article from the New York Times talking with relatives across the political divide by Madeline Halpert. So a couple of tips given. First, they recommend managing expectations. It's important to have realistic expectations for those who hold radically different views. A professor, Dr. Israel, out of the University of California, Santa Barbara, says you're unlikely to change someone's mind after just one conversation. That being said, being pragmatic can help us avoid feeling disappointed and frustrated by the lack of uh, radical change after a single dialogue. So managing your expectations when starting to go into a conversation with a loved one with differing political views. Good or bad advice? I think this is good advice. You should, you know, most important conversations aren't just one conversation. There are things that unfold across time and are revisited and rediscussed and continue multiple times. Um, I also think that it's important when you are having these political conversations with family members that you make sure that you're separating out what is the emotional piece of your relationship and also the political difference. Because oftentimes these conversations can go off the rails. If you've had a really conflictual relationship with a member of your family historically, and you're trying to have a conversation with them about politics, you're probably bringing in that own emotional Mm -hmm. history, which is going to make that- hate, yeah. It's going to make that conversation much more difficult. So if you don't have a great relationship with somebody, you may not be the person to engage in that political conversation with them. You haven't been engaging family member. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You haven't been engaging with that relationship, relational maintenance that we just talked about for a long time. It it will definitely be a hard conversation proven by research. Woods. So good-ish advice. Woods. Sorry. 
Yeah, I also think it's good advice. I think we probably need to be having some of these conversations and learning other people's perspectives, but we we need to do that from an understanding that either it's it's not my goal to change somebody's mindset or it may be totally impossible for me to change somebody's mindset. And so coming at those conversations from an orientation of curiosity and learning how somebody sees something or how they understand or what their core values or beliefs are. And then only staying in that conversation as long as that stance of curiosity can be maintained. So I think managing expectations is a good way to start. Managing expectations. So, so good advice. And you guys touched on some other things we're going to get into in a little bit. A job well done, you two. So next up is practice active listening. So active listening is an important ingredient in difficult dialogue. Dr. Israel explains that this type of communication involves listening to understand instead of listening to respond or to make a response. She suggests that we repeat family and friends responses back to them after we hear them. And also coming right from what Sarah was saying, come from a place of curiosity can also be helpful during these dialogues. She said, this doesn't mean compromising your own views, which I think is really, really important. So these conversations doesn't, don't mean that you have to compromise your own views, but be genuinely interested in what someone else is mm-hmm. experiencing and what they're saying. Practicing active listening, good or bad advice. I think this is good advice. Oftentimes, I think active listening as it's taught can be really robotic. I was going to say like, rote. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Um, so I don't like that piece as much, but I do like the latter part of that advice, especially just because you are listening to somebody's ideas doesn't mean you are necessarily agreeing with them. Right. right? And you don't show that by cutting them off and not letting them talk, but- <laughs> Um, really good dialogue happens when you can disagree, have that curiosity as as Sarah was understanding and give them space to talk about it and then ask questions to try to clarify where, where they're coming from and to get more understanding about that. And that doesn't mean that your opinion needs to change or your ideas need to change. So I especially like in certain conversations, active listening as like very robotic is going to feel weird. Sometimes it can be helpful, sometimes not, but understanding and creating space so you can listen and hear without knowing that listening requires you to change what you think or understand is really important. So good, good, good advice overall. Yes. Woods. Yeah. I think this can be really challenging when it's happening with people we care about. So I definitely think it is good advice to think about if you're pursuing these conversations about politics, having those conversations from a perspective of listening and learning rather than to respond, which is just a good piece of advice for lots and lots of conversations that we have with people we care about. It's just especially hard in this context. So if you're going to pursue these conversations with people you love, I agree with Jacob that taking a stance of of responding or, or then becoming defensive or emotionally reactive is not going to be helpful. And even if even if you're reacting with, but I need them, I need them to change. Right. You're already coming at it with an emotional perspective that that I'm not disagreeing with you, that you may feel very strongly that a family member needs to shift some of their belief systems, but it's never going to happen if you come at it emotionally reactive and if defensive. You, right. And you demand that they change. 
Right. Yep. And it's really hard that in-group, out-group difference of like, I otherwise love you and I'm connected to you. And this is so hard for me to rectify this belief system and this voting pattern with who I otherwise know you to be. I, I know that we are otherwise so similar or so connected or we're so important to each other. It can, it's a really powerful impact in how you have these conversations. Right. So the way you framed it, I think Patricia, in terms of listening to understand instead of listening to respond will be very challenging, but it's really important. Absolutely. So overall good advice. And also like th- this is very challenging. Even what Jacob said is like asking, being curious means you ask questions in a relationship that's fraught and you've been fighting over the past four years for this, trying to approach it differently, taking this active listening and asking genuinely curious questions could still be perceived as being aggressive or questioning or, or whatever. So doing this one time is probably not going to automatically change the dynamics in a relationship, but know that this is a first step and continuing to try it is how you will eventually get to a version of a relationship where you might be able to have these difficult conversations. So next up, take a break if you need one. Elizabeth McCrovey, licensed clinical social worker, says discussions are more productive when participants feel less emotionally charged. You guys are brilliant in forecasting this article. She advises taking deep breaths before speaking and using coping mechanisms while the conversation takes place, such as drinking a glass of water or drawing, which may calm your nervous system and may help you handle stress. An interesting one I hadn't heard of, but I like it. The less agitated you are, then the less agitated the other person might be. I kind of like the, 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 the call to systems interactions there. So take a break if you need one, good or bad advice. Good advice. I also want to make sure that this isn't just on one person, kind of that uh-huh. systemic piece you were talking about, right? Like both people should, if you really want to engage in this discussion with somebody you care about, they should care about regulating right. their own emotions yes, as well. So right. if you are just the only one doing this, that's yes. not a good place because they're going to be, that you're taking care of them. You're taking care that you're trying to emotionally regulate them and that's going to be problematic. So with that caveat, this is really good advice. Whenever you're in a heated conversation, it's good to take some, some, some breaks. What? Yeah, that's, that's exactly my reaction. This is not just on one person. And if you continually find yourself approaching a discussion from the perspective of curiosity or wanting to learn and the other person is emotionally dysregulated and critical and arguing, it's not necessarily something that you're going to change just by continuing to somehow become less and less agitated, more and more peaceful and drinking more and more water. Water. And just so much water. I'm so hydrated. So much water. Really, really hydrated. <laughs> I need another bathroom break. I do think taking a break and walking away and ta- being intentional about not, you're not going to have this conversation, these aren't problems that are going to be solved. These are differences in belief systems. And right now that's very polarizing. You're not changing anything in these discussions. The goal is about staying socially connected with people and maybe about learning something about what they think before any change could ever happen, if that's even a goal. So I think taking breaks and and understanding, again, managing expectations, any of these conversations are not happening in one go, but I definitely agree with Jacob. If you're the only one regulating yourself and the other person is blowing up every time, that's not functional. No, 
Yeah. And you're not going to get anywhere with that anyway. So generally good advice and throwing in some additional advice from a systems perspective. I love it. So the next one is set boundaries. So in this article, they really specifically talk about like uh, using specific, like racially charged or racist terms and saying uh, it's important to set limits around language. This may mean telling family members that using certain words in your presence is unacceptable. Boundaries can be set kindly, politely, and with love. Draw a line and someone continues to cross it. It's reasonable to distance yourself from that person. So setting boundaries, uh, and particularly they're focusing around language. Good or bad advice? Great. Yeah, I'm going to say great advice. I think this is really important um, to set boundaries around that language. And so I'm going to X hundred percent give my like endorsement to that idea. Yeah. Endorsement okay, to that okay. idea. And I also think it's important to know the boundaries of your conversation. Right. I think that there is an important distinction between a political conversation and a fact-based conversation, right? Like if you are mm. coming to somebody to have a discussion of how to solve climate change, for example, right. If one person doesn't believe climate change is real and the other person does, you need to first have a discussion that goes over the facts, right? Because if you're not going to have this same boundary around what these facts are, the way to solve it is not going to be, is not, you know, like you can have multiple ideas of how to deal with issues, right? There can be conservative ideas, there can be liberal ideas, there can be Republican ideas, there can be democratic ideas, there can be libertarian ideas, and they can all have some merit that you can discuss in a political conversation, which is different than a fact-based conversation, right? And I think sometimes we conflate the two. And if you're trying to offer solutions to a problem that somebody doesn't see exists, you're never going to be in the same conversation. So I think it's not only important to have boundaries around what language is used, right? If people are using derogatory racist language, it is important to, to call them out on that and say that that's not appropriate and not appropriate in that type of conversation with you. I also think it's important to understand the type of conversation you're in. Because if you are having a very diffuse conversation that crosses all of these lines, it's just going to be like couples who fight on my therapy couch where you're just throwing everything at each other and not yeah, having a clear, distinct conversation about anything. So good advice to have boundaries around these conversations. Good advice. Woods? I also agree. Good advice. And I would add that setting those boundaries repeatedly may be necessary with mm. people we're close to. And also if you're having to set the same boundary over and over and they're crossing that line and pushing that boundary and testing that relationship in that way over and over it's another piece to point out about I've communicated this many times that this is not okay with me, that I'm not comfortable with you using that language in front of me, in front of my kids, that this is a boundary that I would like to maintain. You continue to step over that boundary. What's going on? And can we shift this? Sometimes the meta conversation about how the conversation is going yeah. can be helpful, but other times it's just necessary to observe that there are people in our lives that if that's going to happen increasingly while we're already under so much stress, over the next few weeks, the next few months, those might be people that we don't necessarily engage in those political conversations, at least for the time being. We need to show up to be able to have these conversations in terms of when we avoid them entirely, we become more socially disconnected from the people we're close to. It's the point that the authors of today's academic deep dive make that declaring this topic off the table is only 
a short-term fix and right. uh, becomes divisive in and of itself. So, so observing where those boundaries continue to get pushed while setting them repeatedly as needed, I think is important. So, so good advice. And also that boundary could be around the timing of having that conversation. Fantastic. Okay. Last, but certainly not least. And there are also a number of other um, really great points that we're not going to get to in, in this mini podcast, but the New York Times article is linked to the episode notes. So check it out. But the last one that we're going to talk about here is keep conversations off social media. Conversations over social media aren't likely to create long lasting change. Dr. Israel says the most productive conversations take place in person or over video or phone calls. So keep conversations off of social media, good or bad advice. I'm going to contextualize a little bit. I think this is good advice, but I also think that you can share good information like through social media, right? Like Mm -hmm. my, my siblings and I have like a little chat that we're sharing articles that we found that are related to the election that offer multiple different perspectives and we each read them. And then we take that conversation, you know, over the phone or through video to have that, because I think you're right when you can respond and react so quickly without seeing that person oftentimes it's easy to forget that we actually love and care for that person. And we see them only as this idea that we disagree with. So I think that in certain respects you can use, Hey, I want to talk with this about you. This is, I think an important context, uh, an important thing that we bring to this discussion that we've been having before read this and then let's talk about this offline. So if you're just trolling a family member online or arguing with them in t- over Twitter or Facebook comments, that's not helpful for anybody. And it's just going to make it really awkward that family gets Sometimes together, it makes so. you feel a heck of a lot better, but sure. Yeah, you're probably yeah. right. That's, your version is the more mature version to do. I yeah. Agree. So okay. I think you can Science. use social media effectively and just understand the limits of it. So, but overall, good advice. Yeah, I think good advice. Keep it off social media. I think nothing like Twitter and Facebook for utter volumes of misinformation. Mm. And I think that mostly people exist in social media in echo chambers. And so the information and the conversations that are going to happen there is is not going to be meaningful, helpful, or necessarily fact-based. And so it has the strong potential to polarize relationships further and become yeah. more divisive and more more contentious. And so I agree. I think this is great advice. Good advice. Try and keep uh, really intense conversations about politics off of social media, though, if you do have that kind of base relational maintenance with family members, it might be a good way, I think, to um, initiate a conversation and then transition that offline. But if you don't have that really important foundation of relationship maintenance, it really can serve to continue to polarize that relationship. Thanks for listening to Attached to our mini pod episode on the election. Remember to keep yourself safe, keep others safe, try and keep those relationships as healthy as possible. And if you don't want to have a conversation with people today, don't do it. You don't have to. But generally, remember If you have any advice that you'd like us to talk about, call us, email us, or get at us on the social medias. If you see some relationship advice involving anything and you're wondering whether to follow or pass on, we cannot.